Rusty was supposed to be preaching today, and I was supposed to be gone, but that didn't work in the schedule. So thank you, Rusty, for being gracious and allowing me to minister to him today. I know you were itching. <laughs> we are in Acts chapter 6. You may turn there if you have your scriptures, and you better have your scriptures. If you don't, then it's a good reminder for next week. Let's have a word of prayer, then we can get scriptures together. Lord, help us this morning as we consider this ongoing story with regard to Stephen and his ministry. I pray you will help us as we consider it that we will not miss the point of Jesus and the Spirit at work. And so, Lord, I pray that you open our eyes and help us to see how you are at work in people and how you transform people and the results of that transformation is stunning, it is striking, it is powerful, it is not uh, unmissable. Or it is, un- it, you can't miss it. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us, that we will be people who are enthralled and changed and dramatically drawn to you by your spirit. So open our eyes so that during this time we will be so. Help us to learn, help us to know, help us to worship. In your name I pray. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 6. Last week we were in verses 1 through 6, the beginning of this story. For those of you who missed it, it is not online yet, is it? It, is. it will be soon. Hopefully in the next couple of days. Yeah. In the next couple of days it will be. Um, it is probably important if you missed last week to be able to connect it to what we talked about. If I may just give a review real briefly. Last week we looked at chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is for those who were not here because there were a number who were missing last week. Uh, chapter 6, 1 through 6, I'm sorry, is primarily understood as being focused on the, the introduction of the deacons. If you remember, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you look at it and you know it immediately. That's what we typically uh, look at when we're talking about deacons. But if you were here last week, you noticed that, I hope you did anyway, that my, my point last week was that is somewhat peripheral. Important, but it's somewhat peripheral to what's really going on in the story. But instead, the story really is encapsulated, the introduction of the story is encapsulated by, by, the, by the, the conflict that's going on, more so than, than the introduction of the deacons. Again, if you have any questions, please listen to the message from last week or talk to somebody who was here. Uh, it's important that we, we understand what's going on. We're going to touch on that this week some because certainly we're continuing with the story. But I just wanted to give you that to bring you up to speed. So starting in verse 8, um, we will pick up in verse 8 and work our way through uh, the end of the chapter this morning. So read, follow along as I read it, if you would, please. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, 
all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's our text for this morning. It's an intriguing passage. Our introduction to Stephen was last week in that his name was mentioned. Also, the description introducing Stephen is pretty powerful. You'll see that in verses 1 through 6. Specifically, you'll see it in verse 5. And when they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then it lists the others. As I said last week, that doesn't mean the others weren't full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. But Stephen is identified specifically as full of the Spirit and full of faith because he's the story. He is the center character, physically speaking, in this storyline that, that, that begins to unfold in verses 8 to the end of the chapter and will continue into 7 even more profoundly. But this is Stephen. You'll notice in verse 8, and this begins my discussion, you'll notice that verse 8, at least in the ESV, starts with the word... And I would argue that word there is very important. It's a conjunction. It ties what came before with what's coming after. And I would argue, some would disagree with me, and I'm okay with that. They're welcome to be wrong. Just kidding. Um, but I would argue that what's going on in eight and following is dramatically connected to verse 1 through 7. And what I'm trying to say is this. I would argue that the conflict that we see in verse 1 between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews is basically going to continue into verse 8 following. In other words, Stephen and these other people were chosen to solve the dilemma, the problem between the Hellenistic Jews and the, uh, the Hebrew Jews, those that spoke Hebrew, and the storyline from eight and following is his dealing with the issue. He's the primary one in the storyline anyway. The other one's probably stepped up and dealt with it as well. But he's, it seems like he's probably the leader of the, this group of deacons who are sorting this problem out. You'll notice that it starts out, and Stephen, full of grace. You notice what he said in verse, what, what he's described as in verse Five, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now you're introduced to another aspect. He's full of grace and power. Do you get the sense the Spirit's at work in this man? Do you get the sense when the Spirit comes? If I may just say this, by the way, where have we heard this word power before? What's that? Wait, start here. Well, it was earlier on, the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, when, when you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, what? Come upon you. you. What do you say, Tom? Yeah, and then as a result, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the other was part of the earth, right? That's what it says. There's other places the word power comes up already in these first six chapters, but it's all, every time you see this word, it's linked back to the statement in chapter 1, verse 8. And here we see Aunt Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing all sorts of things, right? Now, in this storyline, he's doing what? Great wonders and signs among the people. Now, we've talked about this before, and I'm going to come back to this whole section here in just a second. Let me talk about it real briefly the signs and wonders. He is performing signs and wonders. I don't want to minimize that. He's doing miraculous things. He's, we don't know what the signs and wonders are here. He could be healing people, right? He could be doing a number of things. There's signs and wonders going on. 
There's certain things that are happening here. It doesn't describe what at this point. But there's certain signs and wonders that are taking place. We have other signs and wonders elsewhere mentioned where healings are being done, speaking in tongues are being done, raising people from the dead are being, being done. There's a number of things taking place throughout the scriptures that we see there all are encapsulated by this term signs and wonders. We don't know what Stephen's doing, but the Spirit is evident in signs and wonders. Now, I'm just going to say it briefly. I would argue that the signs and wonders we see here and elsewhere all show up early in the book of Acts, as well as in Jesus' ministry. He's doing signs and wonders as well, doesn't he? He's performing miracles as well. But as time goes on in the book of Acts, you're going to see signs and wonders vanish from the storyline completely. And the reason why is because this new program, if you want to call it, better, better, better term probably, this new time frame that we call the already not yet time frame, it's new, isn't it? The, the Old Testament, remember this, Old Testament, Jesus said it's all pointing to him, right? That's what it said. The people didn't get that, did they? Anywhere in the Old Testament. They never got that. They may have been a few that got it, but for the most part, it, did, it didn't connect for people, did it? It certainly didn't connect with the leaders during Jesus' day, right? Nor almost anybody else during Jesus' day. Even the disciples didn't understand it, did they? Even the disciples didn't. And then after his resurrection, he began to explain to his disciples, and for the first time, now he's explained it before, and they didn't get it. But for the first time, he started to get it, didn't they? After the resurrection. Why? Because after the resurrection, it's the beginnings of the already not yet. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. Didn't he? He came to fulfill the law. Did he fulfill the law? Completely fulfilled. But this is a radical departure from where Judaism was, isn't it? It's a radical departure. Absolutely. 180 degree shift here. And so they're in this already not yet time frame, and the signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit is doing through Stephen and, and early on in Paul's ministry and some of Peter's ministry, those are the primaries. Um, there are others, but those are the primaries. Early on, it's the signs and wonders are functioning to demonstrate that their gospel they're presenting, their declaration of the the the, the, the truth that Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law and satisfied the demands of God the Father. That it was true. The Spirit was performing these signs and wonders. Once this new thing in this already not yet time frame is established, those signs and wonders vanish. They disappear. That history is evident in the recorded history of the scriptures. It is, by the way, it is as well in the in the um, in the church history record as well, interestingly enough. It isn't until the late 1800s that even speaking in tongues begin to show up again, interestingly enough. I don't want to get too far into that. I just wanted to point out, you see the signs and wonders. I didn't want to avoid the issue. What I do want to focus on, though, however, in verse 8, is once again, what do we have in Stephen in verse 8? You have a man who is a sinner, but he's full of grace and power, and you've already agreed, have we not, that here this guy, now right now we just have the signs and wonders. Later on, he, in chapter 7, he's going to do what? 
What's he going to do in seven? Preach. He's going to preach, isn't he? He's going to preach. And then he's going to die and even his, in his death, the gospel is present. Right? What I'm trying to say is one of the things we have to see about Stephen, and I would, I would present you right off the bat, the central thing, or at least a central thing that we need to see with regard to Stephen, we see right away in verse 8, and it is this. Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the other part of the earth. And then the, the, the Spirit falls in power upon the disciples, correct? Which results in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And it results in a radically different Peter, doesn't it? As well as the other disciples. He's radically different. We talked about that already. Is it evident that Peter's changed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is it clear? Is it obvious to everyone he comes in contact with? Yeah. It absolutely is. Do you see that from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 5? That's evident. Isn't it? Yes. And, and Peter's being the primary, correct? He's a primary, but he's not the only one, is he? I want to just review real quickly. He's not the only one, is he? Who else? Can anybody think of anybody else in chapters 2 through 5, specifically 2 through 4, but even 5? Where is the Spirit with power evident elsewhere? I'm sorry? Yes, so although it doesn't talk about John much, but yes, John is there. Good. What else? Who else? It's all the disciples. Okay, all the disciples, we'll lump all the disciples together, although we don't have a whole lot of data about it, but we know the Spirit fell in power with all the disciples. Who else? The man that was healed. Okay, the man that was healed. Good. What else? Who else? <coughs> What's the evidence? They considered everything each other's. Talk about change. <coughs> right? I mean, is there not radical change in these new believers being added to the church daily? 3,000, 5,000, and then others are being added daily. Is there not radical change in them? The natural way of man. We don't know anything about them before they got saved, but the natural way of man, we've got to be honest, right? Is money important? Is property important? Is status important? Is prestige important? Is my stuff important? And lo and behold, what happens when the Spirit comes upon them with power? What happens? The things of this earth, what? Go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Is that not what you see in Acts 2 through 4? Isn't it? It's radical. This is radical transformation. Power transformation taking place, is it not? The things I held valuable, I don't hold valuable anymore. Before I saw them from me, for me, to me, to me be glory forever. Amen. Right? Correct? And then they are gloriously saved. 3,000, 5,000 other people added daily. And before you know it, what happens? They're saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's a little transformation, don't you think? Sound like there's a little power going on there? A little bit? Sounds like it to me. 
My point is that when you look at the book of Acts, so far, Acts chapter 2 through chapter 6, here's what we're going to find. And can I just say this real quickly? This is just a inter, this is like a, um, a preview of the rest of the book of Acts. As a preview of the rest of the New Testament. What you're seeing in Acts 2 through 6 about the spirit of power, it never changes. Oh, I mean, every response, every, every evidence is something different, right? You know, Paul talks about we have different gifts and things like that. I get that. But what's, what does not change is what you, ne- here's what you never see. What you never, ever see in the scriptures is what I would call an incognito Christian with power. Do you realize that? It never shows up in the scriptures. Or to use a different term, you never in the scriptures are introduced to an under-the-radar Christian. You're never introduced to that. You know where you find the incognito Christian? The undercover Christian? You know where you find it? You find it listed. You find it, you find them discovered in places like 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4. Watch out, Timothy, in the last day a difficult time will come. Because they this is what Timothy Paul tells Timothy basically, because they will revert. Do all things are from me to me, from me forever. That's what he describes, isn't it? Second Timothy chapter three. Incognito Christians, under the radar Christians, people who are gathering to themselves teachers to tickle their itching ears. They do not endure sound doctrine. They're not transformed. What you see with regard to incognito Christians or under-the-radar Christians, here's what you see. You see them show up at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. When all the church in Asia did what? Left him. And when he's in for his prison imprisonment and he's going up for his defense, everybody left him. Right? Incognito Christians. They did the same thing to Paul that Peter did to Jesus at crucifixion, didn't he? Same thing. But that's pre-power of the Holy Spirit bought him. Correct? You see incognito or under-the-radar Christians show up in some of the churches, most of the churches, in Revelation 2 and 3. Don't you? They're bowing the knee to Baal. What does that mean? They're worshiping other things. They're caught up with other things. That's not, that's not Holy Spirit power. It just isn't. If I may present something to you, I was thinking about on the way here to church, uh, to church this morning as so I was driving here. I was thinking about, um, I was thinking, man, I'd love to do a confession sometime on this one, but I'll just give it here instead. Um, Jesus is described as the name above all other names, names, right? We all know that, right? Above all other names. Interesting term. Name above all 
If Jesus is in my life above all names, do you think I could possibly be an incognito Christian? Do you think it's possible I could be an under-the-radar Christian? Is it possible? I know we say, well, we all get different personalities, Steve, and you're just really outgoing. I get that. That's not an excuse, is it? Name above all names. I know it's not in this text, but if his name is above all names, that sounds to me like, functionally speaking, that means that his name is above all names. When I have the spirit with power, that means his name is the most valuable name I know. Isn't it? The most wonderful and amazing name I know. If that's true, then guess what name is going to be on my mouth? What name will be on my mouth? The name above all names. Who would I be most enthralled with? Who would I find myself by the Spirit with power proclaiming and trumpeting? Jesus. You know what we do here in America? We trumpet our favorite music stars, don't we? We, 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 we trumpet our favorite sports people. We trumpet our favorite, especially in, in, in if I may be blunt, in Christian circles, we, we trumpet our favorite, and I'm choosing the word really carefully, we trumpet our favorite politician. Did you hear what I said? We trumpet our favorite politician. Little planned words there. Don't just dawned on me. What did you say? But you get the point, right? Like what's it, what, is, what does the Bible say? Out of the abundance of the heart, heart the mouth speaks. mouth speaks. In other words, we show whose name is above all names, don't we? We do. And we don't fly under the radar screen of the name above all names, whatever we determine it is. And the point is, and we're not incognito if the name is above all names for us, whatever it is. Right? But if, if, if we have the Spirit with power, the idea in the Scriptures everywhere is, if I have the Spirit with power, and all believers do, the end result, or the net result, of that will be what? That he will be what? The name of all names. The net result is that I will be full of faith. Verse 5, like Stephen, I will be full of faith. I will be full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, full of grace and power. And can I say this? This is not what the text means here, but we will perform signs and wonders. No, not like it says here. Not like it says here. But you know what will happen? There will still be signs and wonders. It just won't be healings, raising from the dead, speaking in tongues. It will be what? 
is it not a, a, a sign and wonder that fallen man who is absolutely doomed and dead in his sin can be transformed and as a result begin to proclaim Christ? Is that not a sign and wonder? Mm -hmm. Is it not a sign and wonder that we would be, by the Spirit, be transformed to proclaiming the one I once absolutely hated and abhorred? Is that not a sign and wonder? Because that's something that's supernatural, isn't it? This is not a natural thing, friends. This is supernatural. Or as Paul puts it, when he says, the love of Christ, what? Controls me. It's not the love of Christ gives me a little nudge, does it? You know what it says? The love of Christ gives me a little nudge. The love of Christ gives me a little twinge of guilt. Is that what it says? Oh, nobody's answering. Is that what it says? No, it says it controls me. It says, because I know the fear of God, I fly out of the radar screen. <laughs> that says? Not even close. Does it say, because I know and understand the fear of God, I do everything I can to remain an incognito Christian? That says? No. What does it say? Because I know the love of, or the love of Christ controls me, because I know the fear of God, I what? I persuade men. Why would Paul know the fear of God? How do you know that? By the power of the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit. Opening his eyes to see, right? Is the power at work in, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit work in, in Paul? Oh my goodness, he was going to kill Christians. To persecute Christians. Road to Damascus. Sounds to me like the Spirit was at work. He's preaching Christ and him crucified a few days later. It's stunning to see. It's absolutely stunning. But somehow, somewhere along the line, in American Christianity, it's become accept acceptable to be an incognito and under-radar screen Christian. Somehow or other it became acceptable. And somehow or other it became unacceptable to be a Holy Spirit power-driven Christian. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? Somehow it became unacceptable to be someone who is evidencing the power of Christ at work. I wonder if it's because, ultimately, because perhaps the gospel received one of the gospel. Maybe the word probably shouldn't be there. Because if, if we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit with power. And so if we have the Holy Spirit with power, he's going to, he's going to be powerful enough, won't he be, to change our hearts? Won't he? And he'll be powerful enough to control our mouths, won't he be? And even in the Old Testament, what did God say to Moses? <laughs> he said, you can't speak. Um, who made your mouth, Right? In the New Testament, we learn about the Holy Spirit with power. So God made this mouth, and he comes with power to use our what? Mouth. It's intriguing, isn't it? 
So, <coughs> I gotta be honest with you, it's kind of rare, isn't it? Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm dead wrong. Okay? Maybe I'm dead wrong here. But isn't it kind of rare to run into someone who claims to be a Christian who is really caught up with Jesus and demonstrating power of the Holy Spirit at work in them? Isn't it kind of rare? Now, let me, let me follow up on that and say, is it rare to, have, to meet someone who claims to be a believer? No, that's not that rare. Is it? That's not that rare at all. Something's wrong there, friends, isn't it? He didn't say you may if you're lucky. If you're one of the lucky few, you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit with power. He didn't say that, did he? No, he said you will. You'll be witnesses. He said. But now, in the Christian church, too often, it's like we have these two different categories. You have the category of the Christian that doesn't have power, and then you got the category of the Christian that has power. And, we, and here's what's really interesting. We have this large group of people in the average Christian church who claims to be believers, doesn't have power, and they're the ones trying to identify who has the power. That's really weird, isn't it? It's really strange. See, in the New Testament church here, you had a church full of people. There's some exceptions, right? They just got removed. Didn't they? Chapter 5. You got a church full of people with power. The power of the Holy Spirit. It's really evident. It's stunning. And everybody in Jerusalem knows it. What did we see last chapter? End of last chapter. What, what, what was going on in, in, uh, in the storyline? You find them saying, the, 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 the council saying, the Sanhedrin saying, they're turning Jerusalem upside down. Isn't that what they said? They're turning the whole city of Jerusalem upside down. Could I just say this real quickly? The average Christian isn't even turning their neighbors right next door upside down. Are they? Most Christians, their neighbor doesn't even know they're a believer. They don't even, they've never even heard them claim to be a Christian. Most people who are Christian, who claim to be Christians, go to, go to work and their cubicle partner, or the, or the, cubic, the person in the cubicle next, next to them, or they're working in another setting in a, in, a, in a car repair shop and they're co-workers, whatever it is. They don't even know for a second they're Christians. All they know is they don't cuss. They don't drink. They don't sleep around. Who cares? Is that power? I mean, they tell me to find power now. The things I don't do. It's, it's, a, it's a negative view of power. The positive view, view of power is what? You'll be my witnesses. When we go to a negative view, well, they know what I don't do. They know what I, what I don't stand for. Where do you see that in the scriptures? Nowhere. It's about who you stand for. Name what? 
of all the names. It's a radically different thought, friends. This is serious stuff here. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So now we've got Stephen, front and center, right? Full of power, isn't he? And now we're introduced to people who ultimately don't like they don't have power. Correct? You're going to see it in a second. Who are these people? Well, first you'll see, it's describing in verse 9, some of them belong to the synagogue of the what? Freedmen. That means they were slaves, but they were free. Okay? They were, and by the way, it meant they were slaves of the Romans and free. This is not like an Old Testament um, day of jubilee thing. This is this is, they were slaves to the, to the Romans, but they've been free. And then he lists, and of the Cyrenians, which was uh, on the northern part of Libya. And then you have of the Alexandrians, which were in, you may guess? Egypt. Egypt. And then those from Cilicia and Asia, which would be over by Turkey. Take your mind. Yeah, over by Turkey. He's got everybody after him. Yeah, he's got everyone after him. But one, there's, there's, there's a, a thread in all of these. Every one of them are Grecian. <laughs> They're Greek people. Okay. Now, where do we where do we hear about these Greek people before? Chapter six, verse one. The Hellenistic Jews. These are Jews who spoke. Greek. Greek, not Hebrew. They spoke Greek. Okay, now do you see the connection? Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then 8 and following. This, this storyline is continuing, not from verse 8, but all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 6. These people evidently were grumbling and complaining. We saw it in verse 1. The, uh, the disciples, the apostles, the elders, as it were, said it's not appropriate for us to deal with this. So the church, pick out some people who are full of faith in the Holy Spirit and have them deal with it. And the church chose, and somebody pointed out afterwards to me, I think you mentioned it, they're all Greek people. Absolutely. And so they're to go settle it, Stephen being one of them. And they go, they go try to settle it. And in the midst of them trying to settle it, Stephen's doing great signs and wonders, evidencing that the Spirit is with him. Correct? But evidently, and I'm just saying evidently very purposefully, the Hellenistic Jews who were batting on the, on the idea, they were swinging for the, for the home run that our Greek fellow brethren will solve this in our... In our what? Our favor. Stephen and these other guys are trying to do what they can to settle it in whose favor? God's favor for Christ's glory. They're trying to work it out to glorify Christ. And what happened? Verse 9, they rose up and what? Disputed with Stephen. They're coming to Stephen and they're arguing. 
arguing. What do you think they're arguing about? Take a guess. What are they arguing with him about? That they're being unfair and not treating the widows. Right? Yes. It goes all the way back to 6-1. They're arguing about the widow issue. And secondly, and most important, they're probably arguing, disputing with, Pete, with, with Stephen over the solutions. Is it possible that it could be arguing over the signs and wonders? It's possible, but connecting, you've got to connect verse verse 1 through 7 as well here. I'm just trying to run a storyline. It seems to me like, like they're trying to solve the problem 6-1. That would suggest that they were part of the church or something. Yes, Absolutely. Follow it through. They are absolutely part of the church. Good, good huh. question, Tom. I would argue they're absolutely part of the church. They're disputing with Stephen. Okay? But, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, I would argue, you see it as we work our way through here, I would argue that these people are no different from chapter 5 Ananias is a fire type of people. They don't have the spirit in power, and so when they're trying to dispute with Stephen, Stephen's bringing what? Wisdom. He's bringing wisdom, and where does he get wisdom from? The spirit that's in him with power, and where's that wisdom coming from? The scriptures, because there is no wisdom outside of the scriptures. Stephen is bringing the scriptures to them. They cannot withstand the wisdom that is the truth being proclaimed and the spirit with whom he was speaking. They can't withstand it. Why? Because they don't have the spirit, right? Because they had the spirit, they could what? If they had the spirit with power, they could what? They could withstand. But they couldn't. It was withering. What was withering? Stephen was so skillful with his apologetics? Was that what was so withering to them? No! He's bringing the word of God to them, and, he, and, and he's, being, he's bringing it to them by the Spirit in power, and they can't stand. So what do they do? These people, the freedmen and all the rest of these Greeks, then verse 11 they secretly instigated men, that is, others. They secretly go to others and instigate them. Who are the others? I would present to you that in the flow of the text, it's pretty obvious who the others are. These people who are part of the church are doing something that is evil, evil, evil. They are going outside the church. Now, where is the church meeting generally? It's meeting in houses, right? But it's also gathering together where? In the synagogues. They're going outside the gathering in the synagogue, and they're going to Jews who don't claim to be believers. And what are they doing? They're getting them all riled up. Over what? Over Stephen. They can't thwart him. They can't thwart Stephen. Who? These freedmen and all the rest. They can't thwart him. Because they don't have the spirit. So what do they do instead? They go to the ungodly people. And they get them all jacked up. Does that sound familiar? That sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what happened shortly after the uh, triumphal entry? 
Isn't that exactly what happened? The very people who were before crying out, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna the highest, the chief priests, the high priests, all the rest of them went to those same people and instigated them, got them all jacked up, so that five days later they started crying out, what? Crucify him. Why? They didn't have a spirit of power. Right? So they go to these other men and they start to instigate them, these lost people, these Jews who are not redeemed, who have not repented of their sin, who have not turned to Jesus, who are still rebellious, who don't have the spirit with power, and they play to their lost heart. Don't they? Verse 11 again, then they secretly instigated men who said they went. Oh, guess what? We just got introduced to some incognito Christians, didn't we? Did you pick up on that? Some under the radar Christians are part of the church. But then in secret, they do what? They go to these other people, these other men. They secretly instigated men who uh, who said, these men that got instigated then do what? They go to the council. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Of course he did. They, he did. Right? From the, from the Jewish religion, of course he did. He has been proclaiming what? Christ as the fulfillment of the law. So have the other apostles, have they not? This same Christ who you crucify. Right? We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him. Who's the ones that are coming to seize him? Not the freedmen and all the rest of these Greeks. It's the ones that got instigated. Who then instigated the elders and scribes and the council. And they come, that is these unsaved people, these people who, who don't even claim to be believers, are now coming and seizing Stephen and bring him before the council. He's now in trouble. <laughs> Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place of the law. The Greek testament. You know, absolutely. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the custom that Moses delivered to us. Now in a way he's been saying that, right? Hasn't he? He absolutely has been saying that. But they're leaving out a part. That's what makes them false witnesses. What are they leaving out? Who's not being mentioned at all here? Jesus. The fulfiller of all these things. The things that all these things pointed to is being radically left out. Remember the previous chapter, anyone even mentioned his name? Don't, we, we forbid you to speak in that in this name. You wouldn't even mention who, who, who this name is. 
And here they don't even reference him. He does a little, they do a little bit later, but, but this, the idea is, he is, he does, they do mention Jesus, but the point is that he, they want, they, they, they're not sorting Jesus into the fulfiller of the law is what I'm trying to get across. So what's my point? My point is, at this point, it's really, let me change that, Luke's point at this point is this. It's several fold. Stephen is full of grace, full of faith, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. He tries to sort it out. They begin to argue with him, dispute with him. And what does he do? He ratchets it up. It's interesting. He doesn't fold. He ratchets it up. And then they do what? They ratchet it up. He's ratcheted it up. They ratchet it up. But they're ratcheting it up is denying the truth, truncating the truth, making accusations that are false at their face because it's not complete. And how does Stephen respond to all this? This is a pretty, pretty dire situation, isn't it? Isn't it? Put yourself in, in Stephen's shoes. Please do so. It's appropriate to do so. This is a dire situation. The council, who have all the power they need, they were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, were they not? Weren't they? Yes. They have all the power they need. All they have to do, just like they did with Stephen, is go to the Romans and say he needs to be crucified. Guess what happens to Stephen? Yeah. Or they could just stone on their own. They have all the power they need. Stephen has no power. Uh, except he has the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we find with Stephen? Verse 15. They all look at him. The accusations are there. The false witnesses have come. Now he, he shortens the storyline. It could actually be interesting if he added all the actual statements, interplays, and all the rest. He chose not to because the focus is not on the false uh, witnesses. The focus on the storyline is just, it, it's to mention, he wants to mention the false witnesses, but the storyline is focused on what? And Stephen, here in verse 15, and gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was what? Like the face of an angel. What do you mean? No fear. No fear. He's calm. He's confident. I don't think the text means that he was like Moses when he came off of Mount Sinai and glowing after he's in the presence of Jesus. That's what he means. I think he, what, what, what Luke is recording is something different is about Stephen. The normal person who would have been in this situation, he's trying to do good, right? He's trying to calm the problem, isn't he? He's trying to calm everybody down. He's trying to settle it all down to help this church to be unified once again. Is he not? 
And it explodes in his face. And in the midst of trying to solve the problem, all of a sudden, all arrows are flying where? Right at him. And then before you know it, it's not just all the arrows of these people who are disgruntled in the church flying at him, but it's also the arrows of all these people who have been instigated. And not only that, but then all the arrows of the Sanhedrin, all the council, are flying at him as well. That's a pretty horrific scenario, isn't it? It absolutely is. But yet here's Stephen. He's standing in front of them. He's absolutely calm. He's confident. He's assured. Because his faith is placed where? In Christ. His confidence is in Christ. You get the picture, if I may use the illustration, if I may use the biblical illustrations, you get the same picture in Daniel, don't you? With Daniel? The lion's den? Isn't it the same thing? You get the same picture with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the image and the music, don't you? And then the fiery furnace, don't you? It's the same thing. You find it throughout the scriptures. It's the same thing you find with Paul and Silas after being beaten and, and they find themselves in prison and they, they grumble and complain. And they gripe and they want to get depressed. Right? No. They're doing what? They're singing songs, hymns of praise to God. Get the same idea, don't you? Here they are. It's seemingly the whole world is against them, right? The ones who have power are completely against him. He's doomed. He knows it. He's doomed. Unless the spirit changes this, he's done. And he just sits there. Or stands there. His face like an angel. You know why? Because by the power of the spirit, his confidence is where? It's with God. It's with Christ. You almost can hear... Peter, I'm sorry, Stephen thinking Paul's thoughts before he even wrote them. Whether I live, it is for Christ, or if I die, it's for Christ. So whether I live or die, it's for Christ. Or the passage you quoted, if I live, it's for Christ, or if I die, it's game. Right? You almost hear it there, don't you? Do you let me ask a question. Do you hear in Stephen here? Do you hear fear? Do you observe any type of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Apprehension. Do you hear any apprehension in him? What, what's the word you said, Tom? Intrepidation. Do you hear any of that? Do you see any incognito, even even hinted at. And he flying under the radar screen, even hinted at. There's no resentment from the church leadership for putting him in that position either. No, there's nothing. It's just a complete trust in Christ. Where does that come from? That's the Holy Spirit. That's sign and wonder, isn't it? Here's another sign and wonder, isn't it? Confidence in the one who has redeemed you. Why do, why do I stop just in a section instead of moving on? Well, part of it's because there's too much to talk about in the next section. But part of it also, this is really important, friends. In these short verses here, we, we are introduced to what it looks like to be called Christ. 
be full of faith. To be full of the Spirit of and the Holy and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what it looks like. This is it. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions, concise descriptions of what the Spirit of power looks like. Now it's going to look differently for all of us, right? Because we're all different people. I get that. But I don't think it looks like cowering. I don't think it looks like shame. I don't think it looks like fear. I don't think it looks like avoidance. I don't think it looks like flying under the radar. I don't think it looks like being incognito. Being full of grace, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and the accompanying power that's guaranteed is promised. Looks like something, doesn't it? And can I just point this out to you? It's pretty easy to point it out, I think. I don't think any of us can conjure this out, could we? I don't think any of us would have a hope of conjuring this up in their lives. This is a spirit thing. Which is why I go back to every time. This is not about we've got to try harder and be more aggressive and be more forceful and be more upfront. And we've got to this, we've got to do that, we've got to do something. No! You didn't see Peter go through some sort of program, seminar, training him for the day of Pentecost, did you? <laughs> it didn't happen. When the Spirit came, watch out, world. <laughs> Didn't that happen? You, you don't see any evidence of Stephen going through all these different seminars for how to be a, a gospel witness. What do you see? He's full of grace. How to grow a church. He's full of, spirit, of, of, of faith. He's full of the power of the Holy Spirit. So what happens? And by the way, I didn't mention this last time, but lest you, it's easy to see and say, well, this should happen just because of this. No. What did, this, what did the apostles say? What did the elders say to the church? Find some people who, what? Are full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen was there. It's like, yeah, Stephen, boom, there it is. It's pretty clear. This didn't just show up because of the moment. Who's already there? He's full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. It was evident to the entire church. So they chose him. I said you look at the ensuing 53 verses, and you know, including the Paul Virgil's faith. Yes. 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 Great point. You're stealing my thunder for future weeks, but it's good. It's good. It's good. You should close on that, I think, for me. Let me, let me qualify it a little bit as well, because I would argue, I agree with you, Tom, but at the same time, the formerly blind guy that Jesus healed was also, what, he was pretty full of spirit, wasn't he? Right? He didn't know much. He didn't know who Jesus was. He just knew what Jesus did for him, right? Boom. <laughs> and I, always say, I agree with you, Tom, that, that certainly Stephen was well-versed in the Scriptures. There's no question. And everything that he does flows out of the Scriptures. Very clear. No question about it. And the evidence is he works his way through the Old Testament very skillfully in, in, in chapter 7. It's very clear. 
That being said, it does not take being that to be full of the Holy Spirit with power. Right? It doesn't take that. And we'll see that throughout the rest of Acts, and we'll see it even in the epistles. When someone's saved, they have the, they have the power of the Holy Spirit, and what they know does what? What is true comes out. That's what happens. Certainly with Stephen, he is full of the Holy Spirit, with power, full of grace, full of faith, and he knows the scriptures very well. But that's not a qualifier. Because, and the reason why I want to point out that it's not a qualifier for all of this is because too often, especially in the American church, we, we default, well, yeah, but the pastor's been to seminary. And he knows Greek and Hebrew. And he spent a whole lifetime studying the scriptures. <laughs> Jim's just smiling over there when I said, you know, Hebrew and Greek. <clears throat> and he spent a lifetime studying the scriptures. So, you know, he's in a different category. No. Either we're full of spirit or not. Because being full of spirit is going to drive us to what? To know the scriptures. Right? It's going to drive us to fellowship in and to meditate on and cogitate and ruminate on the scriptures. That's what's going to happen. That's what, when the spirit's in us with power, it drives us to truth. Doesn't it? Absolutely. So yes, for Stephen, he, had already steeped, he was already steeped in the scriptures. No question. But there are many people who are not. And yet they are full of, 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 the, of the power of the Spirit, and full of, of grace, and full of faith. And, and, and as that process goes on, they grow in their understanding along with that by the power of the Spirit. That's also spirit work. You probably see that in the persecuted churches of the world. Yes. A lot of people yes. Great example. Christmas for a little while. Yeah, great example. And they're dying, getting saved and dying. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's like a one-two step. Save, die. Yeah. And, but when the Spirit's on them with power, they're willing to face death for Christ. It's stunning to see. It's absolutely stunning. So, what's the point of the text? We're going to close on this. The point of the text is challenging us to ask ourselves, <laughs> not am I like Stephen, right? Not am I like Stephen, or to say, man, i got to start being more like Stephen. No, the point of the text is asking ourselves, the reader, asking ourselves to ask, is the Spirit at work in me? And there is not Spirit and the Spirit of power. I reject that construct. I don't see that in the Scriptures. It's not a two-step process. Is the spirit with power at work in me, or is he not? Am I full of, by God's grace, am I full of grace, full of faith, full of the power of the spirit? Is that what's going on in me? Is Christ's name the name above all names for me, or is it not? Is, is my life from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever? As I grow in my understanding of him? Or is it not? Because when the Spirit comes on people with power, something radical happens. I think we do the service of gross, as a spirit, it grows to service when we think that it's not radical. It is. So the, the call to us is to examine our lives and to call upon him while he is near.
to seek him while he is while he may be found. I know. I know, friends. <laughs> I know that's like the rep, the repetitive message of Steve's ministry. I know that. Like almost every week I say that, don't I? Because the message of the scriptures ultimately is the same, isn't it? It's ultimately the same. That it never is do better or do harder. It just never is. It's always what? Know Christ. <clears throat> Seek Christ. Fellowship with Jesus. Haste and see that he is good. Turn your back on the cisterns that can hold no water and drink at the fountain of living water. Stop eating bread stolen in secret. Or stop eating bread secretly that it was stolen. Proverbs chapter 9. And start feasting with the woman who was stolen. It's always the same, isn't it? Because that's the message of the gospel. Time is short, friends. How short? Don't know. Don't know. But that's why the warning is to seek it today. That's why the call is to be after your heart today while it's still today. So we don't develop a harder core heart. Because it happens fast. Does it not? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <laughs> Protect us from redefining what the spirit of power is. Protect us from redefining what being full of grace or full of faith is. Protect us from redefining what having the power of the Holy Spirit is. I ask you to expose us to ourselves. Open our eyes to see our need. Open our eyes to see how desperate we are. Open our eyes to see the wonders of your grace. Transform us. Lord, I pray that this week will not be like every other week where we hear a message from your word and we leave unchanged. I just ask that your spirit will be moving in us. That you will glorify yourself radically, powerfully, supernaturally. In your name I pray. Amen.